You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. So I'm, a, I'm a bit of a word nerd. I love words because uh, I love watching how they evolve over time and, and how languages kind of develop. It's just kind of a thing I, I like to watch. Uh, there, there's a couple words that as you, you look at how they, they developed and where they came from, it's very interesting. Like, for example, uh, the word cell. Like, most of you in the room today have a cell phone in your pocket, right? Originally, that word cell came from a word that meant, like, uh, someone's private bedchambers. Like, their cell is where they would go. It's where we get the word, like, prison cell. It's like a wall with room with, I mean, a room with walls around it. Uh, that, that word began to develop. For example, we have, like, cells in our body, and they represent these small units of biology that have little cell walls around it. You see where that is? And so, as technology develops, this is pretty cool. I, I actually looked it up this week because I was wrong. I thought that the cell phone came from something to do with our the cellular battery that was in it, like the way batteries are built. But apparently, it's actually got more to do with the way that cellular towers are set up in, in a grid, and you get within the walls of that grid. That's why it's a cell phone. You see how words can develop and change over time and, and kind of create a new meaning for themselves? It's, it's pretty cool. I'm a, I'm a word nerd. Another word that uh, it, it's kind of cool to me, I say it all the time, is the word fantastic. I'm like, man, that's fantastic. Originally, the word fantastic was a word that referred to something uh, kind of in the realm of fantasy. You know, you've got, you've got Lord of the Rings, you've got Harry Potter, you've got C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. Fantasy, these are things that are kind of in the, the imagination. Fantasy, if you see something that's just like, that's just unbelievable, you'd say, well, that's, that's fantasy or that's fantastic. Well, now we see something like, dude, your truck, it's unbelievable. It's fantastic. You see how that's kind of changed and grown through time. One of my favorites that I was looking through this week uh, was the word awful, awful. Like, that's how my breath smells after I have, like, an onion chili dog. It's awful. It's a bad thing. Something's awful. Originally, the word awful was a way to express awe. Like, I'm standing in awe of something good. Can you imagine standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon? Like, it's beautiful. It's majestic. It's, this is awful. <laughs> but, like, we've kind of changed the meaning of the word. So words change over time. Michael Jackson made bad uh, mean good. And, like, hip-hop artists took the word fat and spelled it with a PH, and it started not meaning obese, but it meant something else, meaning excellent or whatever, right? Words change over time. Another thing that happens with words that's pretty cool is when you translate them into other languages, they kind of lose their meaning. Uh, this has happened uh, to, to the, uh, the downfall of some advertising campaigns over the years. Maybe you've seen some of these. They're kind of classic. For example, I think it was back in the 60s, uh, Pepsi had a slogan called, Come Alive with Pepsi. Pretty cool slogan. It was one where they were trying to get the younger generation. They were trying to say, Coke is for old people, Pepsi is for the new generation. So they labeled them the Pepsi generation. Then they had this phrase, come alive with Pepsi. Well, they took that campaign to China, but apparently in the Chinese language that they were using at one place, uh, the phrase come alive with Pepsi translated, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. <laughs> Whoa, I don't know if I want that or not. I'm not sure. Um, KFC, uh, for a long time, they were finger looking good. Finger looking good. Uh, they also were in China, and on the sign, it says, KFC, eat your fingers off. <laughs> like, oops, it kind of translated wrong. Uh, another one that I think is pretty, uh, pretty funny, the American beer company, Coors, uh, they had a, a slogan for a little while, turn it loose, turn it loose with Coors. Uh, but in Spain, unfortunately, that translates, suffer from diarrhea. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, I don't know what that drink is, and I don't want it. I don't want that drink in my life. Believe it or not, 
That is how we're going to start our teaching from the Bible this morning. Uh, just like that. We're in this teaching series called Rethink Social, and I mentioned earlier we're talking about different relationships in our life and how God can transform those relationships if we will simply get over ourselves and find out what it is that God has to say about those relationships. And uh, we talked about marriage, and we talked about our relationships in general. Uh, but today, we're going to kind of go on a trip, a trip to a place that many of us spend a lot of time, a trip to work. Yes, it is take a church to work day, your adventure. And we're going to go to work because, you know, when you look at your life in the grand scheme of things, um, many of you, where do you spend more time in your week other than sleeping than at work? We spend a lot of time working 40, 50, 60, sometimes 80 more hours a week doing work. And the reality is, if we're going to spend so much time there, surely God has something to say about what we do while we're there. What I want to do is, is basically establish this point, that God can transform what we do through our work. Whether it's the time that we spend, or more importantly, because this series is about rethink social, and it's the idea about relationships, also how we can transform the relationships we build through work. Whether it's coworkers or clients, maybe it's customers, maybe it's just people that you come across uh, in your everyday work. But the reality is the time that we spend at work encompasses a lot of our day, and it's really important to see what God might have to say about what we do with that time and with those people. And so that's what we're going to be diving into. So I started out this morning talking about words, right? Words, they, they have different meanings. They evolve through time. Translations are crazy. But I want to take a look at two specific words that denote work or occupation, my J-O-B, okay? Two words that we often use to describe that. And so if you're a note taker today, this would be the, the first thing that you'd want to make sure you get down because these words are going to be vital for you. All right, the first word is this, vocation. Vocation. You familiar with that word? The word vocation is, is something we might call our job. Okay, put a pause on that, fold it up, stick it in the back of your head. We're going to look at it in just a second. The second word we're going to look at is profession. Profession. We get the word professional from profession. So vocation and profession. And we're going to go back between those two words and I think that we can really learn something hidden within the clues of where these words came from as to what God might be able to do to transform work. For us, let's take a look at the word vocation. Vocation. It's normally uh, seen as someone's occupation. But did you know that the word vocation originally comes uh, from the idea of, uh, well, let me tell you about the word vocation. It comes from the same word as the word voice. Like, think about vocal. We had some vocalists standing right here just a minute ago. Vocal, vocation, you hear that? It's about voice. So originally, this word vocation actually comes from this idea of feeling like maybe you're hearing the voice of God on your life. It's your calling from God. And so you see the world and you see the thing that you most relate to and feel like, I could do this for God. I feel like God's calling me for this. And then that becomes your vocation. What you do with your life is your vocation. Isn't that interesting? It's, it originally came from this idea of a calling from God. But now what you do with your life is your vocation because that's just what we call it. The other word profession is interesting too. Because the word profession was actually originally used by early Christians. It was the profession of what I believe about God comes out in how I work. I profess my faith through how I work. It's my profession. Actually, it also became the name of a list of religious rites that you would sign if you were going to become, say, a monk or something. And you're like, I'm going to sign my profession because now this is my profession of my faith. 
I think that within the word vocation and profession, we find clues as to what it is that God can do with us in work. And so it's really interesting because typically in our culture that we live in today, we take work and we put it over here, and then we take faith and we put it over here. There's this great dichotomy. It's like, well, these are the things I do spiritually, and I'm not really going to talk about those anywhere else. And so we've got this, this world over here that exists. It's our faith world, okay? This is, uh, you might, you go to church, you're here today, so you've done that at least once, and you've been to maybe a Bible study, maybe you're in a small group, maybe you pray occasionally, or you have spiritual conversations, but that's like, we're going to kind of put that over here. That's what our culture does. And then over here is everything else we do. It's my work, it's my hobbies, it's my friendships, it's my relationships. Uh, if, you, if you please, let's keep religion out of this, right? That's kind of, am I right? That's kind of how society views it. It's, it's a dichotomy. There's two parts of it, faith and then everything else. But what's interesting is that that is not how early Christians thought of it at all. Not at all. And it's certainly not how God thinks of it. In fact, I believe there is so much more crossover than we could ever find credit to give between what we believe about God and then what we do with our time and with the people that we're with. If you've got a Bible today, we're going to be uh, in a couple of different places in the Bible. Grab it. We're going to turn to the book of 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we've got a few that are scattered along under some of the chairs. Uh, we want you to know you can have one of those for free. We give away Bibles for free. Uh, everybody should have a good readable version of the Bible. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'll just throw this out there, too. Uh, you might be in a position in your life where you kind of hear about the Bible and you're like, Bible, huh? You guys are Bible people, huh? Cool. Yeah, you know, that's a bunch of hocus pocus, right? Um, we do put a lot of stock in what the Bible says. In fact, I say that uh, we get the answers to life's most important questions out of the Bible. Uh, and if you're interested, I want to let you know that actually starting next week, we're trying to figure out the dynamics with the chili cook-off being rescheduled for next week and this class. But starting next week, we have a four-week class called Venture Basics. And we spend a whole session of our class talking about the Bible and the reliability of the Bible. And is it reliable? And what type of evidence could there possibly be for that? So just want to plug that for you. If you're interested in Venture Basics, uh, take that little long skinny card that was in your seat, the connection card. Make a note on the back of it. There's actually a checkbox. Make sure you put your name and email address too. Some people have just turned in the card that just checks the box and they put it in there. It's like, sorry, didn't read your mind. Put your name on the one side and then check the box on the other side. That'd be helpful. But we're gonna look in the Bible. We're gonna be in the book of First Peter and we're gonna see something that he says about work and our faith. Uh, the book of First Peter is written by this guy named Peter. Peter was a man who, uh, he, was called, uh, he was called out of his profession of being a fisherman to actually becoming a fisher of men is what Jesus called him. And he was someone who got to show faith to the world through what he did. He's a perfect person to talk about this. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we land here. He says this. He's talking to us. Listen. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You are a chosen people. Look at this next word. A royal priesthood. That word priesthood is crazy. It actually, the word priest, it carries with it the idea of building a bridge between man and God. That's what a priest does. And priests happen in many different religions, okay? But this is what, this is what Peter's saying. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I, I want to make clear something. Let's just leave that verse up there for a second. This verse is not written to pastors. It's not written just to pastors. It's not written just to uh, any type of professional clergy ministry person. It's not written to a missionary. 
uh, it's not written for little old ladies who have decided to devote their life to, you know, making doilies for homeless people. Like, it's not written to a small group of people who do really good things. This passage was written to the church. The whole church. What Peter is saying, you, church, all of you are a priesthood. All of you are a chosen people. All of you have a specific thing that you need to do. We're going to get back to that in just a second. Because that is not how we typically think of things. Not only do we typically think of things in terms of, over here is my spiritual life, over here is everything else. But we also tend to think of things in terms of this, uh, I'm going to call it a holiness hierarchy. (laughs) A holiness hierarchy. Let's put this uh, little pyramid up here uh, to represent this holiness hierarchy. These are uh, the people that do Good work for God through their job. People that do good work for God through their job, and we think of it in terms of a hierarchy. So at the very top of the, of the hierarchy, you might have Jesus. So Jesus is up there. Of course, he would be at the top because he's kind of like, you know, pretty good at using his life for God. And so there's Jesus. And, and then like below Jesus, though, we start to, to label people. So below Jesus, you get this second category. You get what I would call really good people. So right below Jesus, I got Mother Teresa here. And you, got, and you got Martin Luther King. These are really good people. I mean, these are people, the way I kind of qualified these people is that these are people who have affected millions of people for God. Below that, you've got um, another group of people, and we would call these professional Christians. These are the, prof- this is Joel. You know Joel Osteen? He's just good. To, glad to see you, brother, sister. If you just put another dollar in the plate, the Lord will bless you. You know, this is, this is Joe. These are professional Christians, uh, and there are a lot of them. There are people that, you know, they're on television, they've got websites, they write books, and, and we look up to them because we're like, you know what, they must be doing something right. God seems to have called them into something special. There's this hierarchy. You see how it's coming down. And then below that is, might be people that we would just call heroes. These are heroes. These are people who, uh, they, they do things in their everyday life that if they do believe in God, man, they really change the world. And so over here we've got, you know, maybe a nurse or a firefighter police officer, we've got a doctor, we've got, you know, some other professional workers who they're heroes in our community who maybe do really good things for God. And so we look at this hierarchy, we're like, yeah, okay, these are people who could use their jobs for God, starting with Jesus, trickling on down. But there's one more layer to the pyramid that we build. Actually, we're going to put it up there. It actually is down there below, as as everyone else. That's everyone else, that's most of you in the room, that's everyone else. And you're kind of like, it's not really for me. It's not really for me to do God's work at my job because, after all, I'm a construction worker and my job is to build buildings. You know what I mean? And, like, whatever your job is, you fill in that spot. Here's the problem. This is not true. This is a myth. This hierarchy doesn't exist. God never goes through and says, just so you know, there are some people who are special and get to do the most work for me. And the rest of you, you just, you're off the hook or it doesn't really matter what you do. This is a myth, but we believe it. We believe it with all our heart. Yet Peter gives us a passage. He says, you, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You're my special possession, and you've got a job. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Here's what I see Peter saying. No matter what you do, you've got a mission. You've got a mission. Today, guys, here's what I want to do. As we talk about work, what I want to do is, is talk about the possibility that you don't just have a career. I want to speak to you college students. College students, there's several of you in the room right now. Maybe your job, your, your job is what you're doing in school, and you're also preparing for what you might would call a career. That's not just what you're here to do. That you don't just have a career, but instead 
you do actually have a calling. A calling from God that maybe when someone meets you and they ask you what your job is, you say, I'm on a mission from God. Let me show you that through my life. Now, you might want to not want to actually say that because they'll probably call the police and be like, this person is on a mission from God, and normally that doesn't go well. <laughs> um, but in your mind, you can say, I'm on a mission from God. And, you know, in this rough economy that we're living, living in, you may have lost your job. You may have been laid off. You may be sitting on the edge of losing your job. And people go, oh, man, what are you going to do now? Well, I, I don't know. But what I do know is I'm still on a mission from God. I'm on a mission from God to shine his light into dark places and to do what has been done for me and bring people out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And that no longer we'll think of ourselves as, I'm a teacher, or I'm a city employee, or I'm a builder, or I'm an artist, or I'm a stay-at-home mom. And you can say, I'm on a mission from God. He's called me to change the world one person at a time. See, we think in terms of having a career. But I think that we really have a calling. As we listen to his voice, we find our vocation. And then as we live out what we believe about God, we find our profession. You following me? This is our job. So what is your career? What is your occupation? Uh, what is it that you do? The best news is you can transform. God can transform your career into a calling. In fact, he's done it over and over again. And my guess is that that's where most of us are today because so many of us believe in this idea of there being like a spiritual part of my life and then the rest of my part of my life. And I think that we can bring that together and say, I can use my job, my J-O-B, my occupation, my profession, my vocation to serve God in a special way. The question is, how in the world do I do that? Like think about your job right now. Think about the roughest day that you've had. And you'd be like, okay, it's, it's nice in theory that I could use my job for God. Uh, but I just want to cuss that lady out and punch her in the nose and never see her again. Right? Don't lie like that never happened to you. Maybe it was just me. <laughs> I think that uh, one of my goals for this teaching series is that it's very practical. That, I mean, we've talked about marriage. And like last week, we're like, okay, here's some things you can practically do. Say some things, do some things. This week, I want to make it very practical for you at work. And so, uh, you know, there, there are these there are these principles, these guidelines, these three things that I think that if you can take these three things home with you, you can really begin to see God transform your work, see God transform you from a person with a career to a person with a calling. And so there's three of them. And the first one is this. I think it starts with how you work, how you work, like the way that you do your work. And I think it's uh, very fitting also during under this how you work section to talk to a lot of you who might just hate your job. Because so often we get stuck with jobs we're just stuck in. Maybe you work for like a terrible employer or you just can't stand the customers or you don't even like the widget that you push on people. You know what I mean? You're like, I don't even like doing this. But it's what you're doing. It's how you're paying the bills. It's how you're putting your kids through college or food on the table or whatever it is you're doing. How you do your work, though, makes a huge difference in how we live out a calling for God. I, I, there's an example in the Bible of some guys who had a really terrible work situation. It was, it was horrible. Um, I'm going to take you back on a journey to about 587 B.C. Okay, this is a long time ago. Uh, we talked about them a few weeks ago, but there was a few guys uh, named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we find them in the book of Daniel, but we also find their story and some of their contemporaries spread out through the Old Testament of the Bible. Let me tell you about their bad work situation. They had a boss who was the king of Babylon. 
Uh, I just want to go and tell you, you probably don't want to work for a king. Most of them are bad bosses. Uh, so this guy, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon, and he's a narcissist. He's all about, like, it's all about me. Do whatever I want you to do. Not only that, but he is taking over nation after nation after nation, and their goal is to destroy the identities of the people that they had taken over for his empire. And one way to do that is to eliminate their religious beliefs. So they take over the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, they believe in God. They believe in the one true God, and they worship him, and they have all their, their ways. Well, the Babylonians didn't believe in the God of the Jews. And so he, uh, they, they believe in kind of a pantheon of gods, kind of like the Greeks and the Romans. And so they, they come in, and they're like, one of the best ways to destroy these Jews, uh, like their morale, is to destroy their religion. And so they begin to force them to worship as the Babylonians did. One thing that this king did was he built a 90-foot gold statue of himself and said that everyone had to bow down to it. And right now you're thinking, that dude sounds just like my boss. <laughs> you're like, he did. And, and talk about a bad work situation. And if you didn't, the consequences were execution. Bad work scenario. These guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, were government officials. They worked for the king of Babylon. They had no choice but to bow down to him or suffer the consequences. So you get to this horrible work situation, and you look at this idea of how do I use my career as a calling. There was a prophet that lived along the same time period as, as these four men. His name was Jeremiah. Uh, prophets are people who just bring a word from God. They share it with the people. And so Jeremiah is speaking into the lives of the people that are in exile in Babylon. And they're under the rule of this wicked boss, the bad king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4 through 7, check out what God says through Jeremiah to the people. This is what he says to these people in this terrible situation. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is their advice, God's advice. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, if you're like me, sometimes when people read from the Old Testament prophets, I turn my brain off. I'm like, okay, I don't know what he just said. Um, so let's look at that again, the very last sentence, the last two sentences. This is what God tells the people who are under the rule of this king. He says in verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you. Why in the world would I want to do that? These people are mean to me. They're oppressive. I'm like slaves to them. Yet you want me to seek the peace and prosperity of this city? And then the next verse, pray to the Lord for it. You want me to pray for this city? Why would God command them to do that? Why would he tell them to pray for these oppressive people? I think this is why. I believe it's because he had a calling for them. He had a mission for them. He said, listen, while you're there... I want people to see my light through your life. And the way they're going to see it is in how you work. How you work. How did they do it? Well, we don't know what everyone did, but we get a few examples. For example, this guy Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, they did their work better than anybody else. They were constantly being praised for being uh, the, the strongest and the fastest and the brightest. It's because they said, whatever we do, we're going to do it to the glory of our God. Not to this king, but to the glory of our God. And so they're constantly getting promoted, promoted, promoted. That's why they end up as government officials. Why? Because the way that they worked 
reflected what they believed about God. God wants me to do everything to his glory, the best of my ability. You know, there were some times when the king would come in and, and, and ask them and tell them and command them to do evil things, things that he didn't approve of, like worship him as God. They didn't do those things. They didn't compromise their faith. They didn't compromise their belief, but they also didn't pitch a fit and become really annoying and set up some weird picket line outside and just make everything go down, downhill from there. You know what they did instead? They explained to people why they didn't do that. Well, because God has a higher calling than this, than to worship you. You know what's really awesome? Eventually, this guy, King Nebuchadnezzar, gives glory to God at the end of the story. What? Because they saw their career not as just a job, but as a calling. And how did they do it? They did it in how they worked. Whatever it is that you do, do it well. Don't be sloppy. Perform excellently. Whether it's kids, there's some kids in here. Do your homework the best you can because it's a reflection of how God made you. No matter what you do with your hands as a job, do that to the best of your ability so your boss can go, you know what, I might be a jerk, but that dude's got it together. (laughs) Maybe he needs a promotion or maybe it makes him mad. I don't know. But at the end of the day, you begin to reflect something that you believe about God. It's in how you work. I'm asking you, what is your impossible situation? What, what, what big God are you asking to be bowed down to? What big statue? Is it that your boss is this evil boss? Maybe. Is it some crazy coworker that you just can't stand? Maybe uh, you just work with somebody that's just super irritating. <laughs> You're like, I just, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard every time you open your mouth, so please just shut up. Like, I don't know. I, I've worked with those people. But what is it that's the impossible situation? Maybe it's that you hate your job. I'm not telling you don't go look for another job. If it's available and God wants you to have it, boom, take it. (laughs) But while you're there, why don't you think of your career as a calling, as an opportunity to show them how good God is. That's the first thing, how you work. I could say a lot more about that, but there's two more I want to get into pretty quick. The next one is this. The second one is how you interact. How you We're talking about what you do, but that doesn't actually cover how you treat people. How you interact. Another way to turn your career into a calling is in how you interact with the people that you come into contact with. See, just as much as God values the work that you do, you know what he values more than the work that you do? The people that you come in contact with. That's what he really values. And the way that we interact with people will show a lot about how God feels about those people. Especially if they find out that our profession is Jesus. The question is, how do you deal with gossip in the workplace? How do you deal with office politics? You know that's a profession of your faith. How do you receive feedback from your boss? You know that can be a profession of your faith. How do you motivate fellow coworkers? That's a profession of your faith. How do you take interest in others as you socialize and hang out? Also without compromising your character or your integrity. You know that's a profession of your faith. And while we're talking about integrity... How you handle the integrity with which you treat your customers and treat your timesheet and treat your your business credit card. People see that as they interact with you, and it is a profession of your faith. It's challenging. I'll tell you, it's it's challenging. So we need God's help to do that. (laughs) We're going to mess up. We're going to be jerks sometime. We're going to have a short fuse. So when you face difficult situations with difficult people, you know what you can do? You can say, I'm on a mission from God. Again, be careful who hears you say that. <laughs> but I'm on a mission from God. You can think to yourself, this is my opportunity. I'm on a mission from God. God, you've called me here for some reason. For whatever reason, this season of my life, I'm here. I want to partner with you in your mission. Help me to shine your light into the lives of these people as I interact with them. 
Help me to guard my tongue. Help me to keep from making those slanderous comments about people. Help me to love them with my actions. Help me to serve them. I'm telling you what, man, isn't it cool? Isn't it cool that you, if you think about it that way, you can wake up every morning and think, I'm going to go to my mission with God. I'm not going to work. I'm going to my mission with God. How do you turn your career into a calling? Well, I think it begins with how you work. I think it also is majorly important how you interact. And the third thing is this, getting right to it, is how you engage spiritually. Because we can do a lot with people, but if we don't begin to engage spiritually with them, we're not going to be able to do that thing that Peter says we're called to do, calling people out of darkness and into light. There has to be a point at which we engage with people spiritually. The, the writer in the Bible, Paul, uh, who's got his own bad past with job situation, his job before he became a Christian was killing Christians. So that just shows you how much God can transform your workplace. It's pretty awesome. Um, but So he becomes a Christian. He becomes a major leader in the church. And in 2 Corinthians, he writes this that's pretty awesome. And I want you to think about this in the context of your work. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person's a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We're going to use that word reconcile a lot here in just a second. So I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page with reconcile. Reconcile means bring two things back together. Things that were together, that have become separated, they've become back together. Maybe like when you're in seventh grade and you broke up with that guy or that girl like nine times. Y'all just kept on reconciling. <laughs> you're like, okay, we're back together again. We're apart. We're together. We're apart. Reconciliation with God is about, at some point I was on good terms with God. Maybe it was when I was an infant. Maybe that was the last time I was on good terms with God. But I've been pulled away from him. Now I'm trying to be reconciled to him. Okay, so let's just back that up. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Let's rec replace that word, the calling, the mission of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has command, committed us to the message of reconciliation. In other words, hey man, did you know you could be good with God? We can help people by sharing the message of reconciliation. Last verse. So we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the mission. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, around here we call it being a God chaser. You are an ambassador for God. An ambassador is someone who represents their country in another country. Their nation in another nation. If you were the ambassador to China from Japan, you wouldn't walk up into some government official's office in your pajamas and your slippers on and just kick back. Hey, what's up, Mr. Kim? How you doing? You know, it's like just going off and talking. That's, you're not going to disrespect him that way. When you're an ambassador for a nation, you carry the, the weight of the, the, your nation's dignity on your shoulders. You speak on behalf of your nation. We're not talking about international diplomacy here. We're talking about spiritual diplomacy. This is God saying, I want you to be my ambassador. I want you to go to help people reconcile to me. You've been giving the ministry of reconciliation. You're an ambassador. And we're told here that we are ambassadors of Christ. And that means that you represent him to the world and to the people at your work. And you have this message of reconciliation to share with them. That God is for us. And that he loves us. And that you too can come out of whatever darkness you're in and into his light.
I want to tell you for a second, you might be here this morning, we, we say all the time we want to be a church for, for people who maybe don't like church or haven't done church. You might have come with a friend or you just came in because it was too wet outside and you just want to go somewhere dry. I don't know. I want to be an ambassador of Christ to you real quick. I want to tell you, God loves you. And God wants you to seek him. And maybe you've got a lot of questions about God, and a lot of doubts and a lot of fears. And I want you to know this is a safe place to bring all that. You don't have to check that at the door. Bring it right on in. Bring all your background, all your baggage. Have a seat. Grab a friend. Spend some time getting to know about this God who loves you. Because he totally wants to reconcile to you. He totally does. And those of us who have found that, we're ambassadors. You know, one thing that can prevent a lot of Christians from wanting to engage spiritually with people is that it's terrifying. <laughs> Am I right? It is terrifying to try to go to somebody else and be like, hey, listen, uh, I've written these 95 theses of all the things I believe about God, and I've nailed them to your office door, and I want you to just, uh, when you get some moment, just tell me how you feel about that. Like that's, often we feel like that's what God's calling us to do, to walk in and just walk in. Oh, you know everything you do is a sin, right? Yeah, God hates you, you're going to hell. Yeah. Like that's, that's the fear that we feel, that's the conversation that we're supposed to have with people. Not true. Another myth. Busted. I want to take a page out of Jesus' book and see how he began to have spiritual conversations with people. A lot of times we get in the mindset that we need to tell people stuff. And it's true. There are some things we need to tell them. But when we want to look at what Jesus does, he does tell. He does teach. But often when he meets people for the first time, he doesn't tell. He asks. It's pretty interesting. Did you know that the, the numbers may vary? I'm going to share some statistics with you real quick. They may vary depending on how you count. But this is generally the ballpark. Do you know that Jesus in the Bible was asked about 183 questions? People had questions for Jesus. About 183 times someone asked him a question. Do you know how many times in the Bible at least we have recorded him, of him directly answering a question that someone asked him? Someone asked him a question and he directly answered it about three times. About three times did he say, okay, here's the absolute answer to that question. Boom. Now, Jesus did answer questions, and he did teach, and he did a lot of that. But in some of those same conversations, you realize this? When Jesus was asked questions, do you realize that Jesus asked about 307 questions in the Bible? He directly answers three. He asks about 300 and that's not to say that there aren't answers for the questions people were asking, but what it shows is Jesus engaging with someone relationally, asking questions. And you can get to some deep spiritual places by asking some simple questions, simple questions like this. Hey, where'd you grow up? Yeah? Well, where'd your family come from? Really? Cool. What was your family like? Yeah? Neat. Did you guys ever do, were you like very religious growing up? Hmm. Did you ever do church? My family does church right now. Yeah. What was that like for you? What, what are you passionate about? So you're asking questions that are starting to probe into someone's heart, someone's mind, someone's spirit, and you're not telling them any crazy big truth. What you're showing them is that you love them, that you want to have a relationship with them. You can ask questions that get a little deeper. So really, what's your spiritual background? What's your spiritual background? You ever wonder about God? What else do you have about God? I'm curious. If you could do anything, what would you do? These questions invite people to talk about their own experiences and their deeper desires about life in a non-threatening way. It's the way we normally make friends. <laughs> but when it comes to spiritual things, we're like, I don't want to get there. And here's a trick. Don't just ask questions. Listen. We've got to listen to what people are saying. Do you know there are so many things people could say to you as they answer the simple questions about their life? And you begin to see past the skin, past the facade, into who they really are. Maybe some struggles they're dealing with. Maybe some doubts and fears that they have. 
And so you look them in the eyes, and you can listen, and you can ask follow-up questions. And if they don't talk about religion, if they don't talk about faith, I'm like, yeah, where'd you grow up? Cool. What's your favorite religious leader? Like, we don't go straight for the kill there. That's ridiculous. Make a relationship out of it. Listen, and you don't have to correct anything someone says. Oh, yeah, what you just said, that's inaccurate, uh, according to the uh, byproducts of my study. No, just listen to what they're saying. And while you're listening, you look for opportunities. Opportunities that through that relationship, you can begin to engage spiritually with them. A chance to do this. I love this. This is my favorite, favorite method to talk about what God's done for me. I just talk about what God's done for me. Yeah, I had a lot of pain in my life, and then this is how God has dealt with it. I've had some huge failures in my life. This is what God's done about it. Yeah, marriage isn't easy. You're right. But this is what God's helped me do with it. Parenting, yeah, who knows how to do that. This is what God's helped me do with it. I just say, this is what God has done for me. And what we've done is we've now engaged in conversation. And when we engage people spiritually, we can begin to look for opportunities to share our spiritual journey with them. And then there will come a point, if you're praying for them, if you care about them, if you love them, if the relationship is built, that you begin to invite them to come in deeper with you, where you are. Man, this is where I've been. At. I know, I'll tell you what, just come, come with me to my small group sometime. Come hang out. Just come hang out in Chile with us next week. That'd be fun. There's an opportunity to invite them to church every single week. Come, hey, come hang out with me at church. We talk about big questions of life all the time. And as you do that, you'll learn that how you work and how you interact and how you engage spiritually will become a path to making your work not just a career, but a calling, a vocation, a profession. And we've called this series Rethink Social. And we've been talking about the relationships that can be transformed by God. And I'll tell you this, there is nothing that will make your J-O-B more exciting and more meaningful than making it a mission that you're on with God. Nothing is more important than that. Whatever you're doing in your life, to say, God, I'm doing this with you. And so your job can have incredible significance in every way. And you'll go from following a career to living at a calling. And if you do that, God will transform work for you. Can I just pray over you and your work right now? God, thank you for giving us things that we can do with our time, ways that we can earn uh, a living, ways that we can um, contribute to society. I mean, each one of us has a role that we play in this city, and, and this city wouldn't be the same without, without any one of us. And so I just pray uh, a big prayer of thank you for that opportunity. But God, as we think about our work, and it's so heavy on us every day, and sometimes we wake up and don't want to go, or maybe sometimes it's just really exciting. We do love work. But I pray that it's not just about the work. I pray that it's about being on a mission with you, that we can help shine the light of your goodness into the darkness that is here in this city, in our friends' lives, in our families' lives, and say, man, you can transform us through our work. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.